Lord, thank you for the power of your word as your Holy Spirit breathes upon it and opens our hearts up. And Lord, I pray for your power to be upon me. I pray that you'd give me wisdom. I pray that you'd give me the heart, Lord, um, and help me to teach things that are in accord with the scriptures. And I pray that, that you would just blow us away with the glory of your mercy this morning as we keep unfolding your story as you've revealed it in the scriptures. So come and help us, Lord, now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're talking about the story of God, as, as uh, Dave Clark mentioned earlier. And basically, the question we're asking is, uh, who is God, and what is he up to as he's revealed himself in the scriptures? And we started off uh, looking at eternity past, and we saw that God has always been there's never been a time when God was not. And that he's, he's always been full of joy and delight and exuberance in beholding the perfections of his glory as displayed in the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So from eternity past, God has always been full of joy in his perfections, the glory of his perfections. And this joy in his glory moved him caused him to want to create, to go public with his glory, to display his glory so that he could share with us, created beings, the joy that he has in beholding his glory. And so that's what God did. He he created the universe and he created the world and he created Adam and Eve. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And so Adam and Eve saw God in all of his glory through creation. They, They saw that God was massive. I mean, just when you think about the immensity of, of what he's created, you want to go to the, I love this picture here. Don't want to, to overuse it, but scientists tell us that the universe in creation, there was nothing. Scientists don't tell us this, but the Bible, there was nothing. And then God simply spoke a word and the whole universe was there. And scientists tell us that there's over 50 million galaxies that are around 100,000 light years wide, okay? And if you just, again, that is absolutely mind-boggling to think about that, but Adam and Eve saw a God who is that immense that there was nothing, he spoke a word, boom! 50 million, 100,000 light years wide galaxies, just like that, they saw his immensity. And they experienced his nearness, that this God, so see, that's where the sun is, and you can't even see the sun or the earth, right? But so the God who then came down and was so near that he saw Adam and Eve, noticed their needs, talked with Adam and Eve, walked with Adam and Eve. So this immense God and this near God, and then they also saw how merciful this God was because they had just received, I mean, there was a moment when they were not existing, and then just like that, they'd been given life. What a gift! Life! And bodies! It's amazing how these work! and each other, husband and wife, and every need that they had provided completely. And best of all, they had the joy of beholding God, walking with God, having their hearts be ever increasingly satisfied in knowing God and his glory. And God said, here's this free gift. I've given you life, bodies, each other, provision. I've given you myself, and all this is going to continue forever. Just trust me to guide you, what's right, what's wrong. Trust me to provide for you. Trust me to satisfy you. 
with myself. Just trust me. And it'll all continue. But if you don't, you will die and lose it all. So what did Adam and Eve do? They'd seen God's immensity. They'd seen God's nearness. They'd seen God's mercy. All they'd ever experienced from God was goodness, wisdom, love, truth, faithfulness. What did they do? They didn't want to be told what to do. And so they turned their backs on God and walked away from him and lost it all. They lost paradise. They lost eternal life. They lost fellowship with God, cast out of the garden. But we saw last week that God showed them mercy. Remember, he made them garments, clothes out of animal skins, a a display of God's mercy, and provided for them in other ways. And so that brings us to the end of Genesis chapter 3. And and again, remember now, all of this has been purposefully allowed by God. God was not wringing his hands saying, what's happened to my creation? All of this was purposefully allowed by God because all of this was going to display his glory in ways that we couldn't even imagine. So all of this purposefully allowed by God to display his glory. So what happens next? Genesis chapter 4. Let's turn there. Genesis 4. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. I want to have a, we'll just pass it out to you. I'd like you all to be able to look. We're going to cover a lot of ground. Chapter 4 through chapter, beginning of chapter 12 this morning. And what happens in this section of scripture, Genesis 4 through 11, leading up to chapter 12, is that Moses gives us an amazing display of God's mercy. The glory of God's mercy. But first... I think he wants us to focus on this question. How does God respond to the first sin after the fall? Fall's taken place, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve turned their backs on God, lost paradise, lost eternal life, lost relationship with God. What happens? How did God respond to the first sin after the fall? Here's what happens in chapter 4. Now, read all these passages later on. I'm not going to go through it verse by verse. There's no way we can do it verse by verse through whatever eight chapters we've got here. But read these verses on your own, please. But let me, let me just recap what happened. Eve gives birth to Cain. Okay, this is their firstborn son. And then gives birth to Abel. Okay, now Cain raises, or Cain raises produce, like corn, something like that. Abel raises sheep. Adam regularly gathers his family together for family worship. They come together to celebrate God's goodness, to talk about how good God is, to thank him, to worship him. And part of this is they bring food offerings as a way, not because God's hungry, he's made everything, but as a way to celebrate God's lavish goodness to them. And so, so uh, Cain brings like a, some corn, and Abel brings a lamb, because Cain grows corn, Abel raises sheep. Uh, Cain brings some corn, Abel brings a lamb, and they offer these to God. And God is pleased with Abel's lamb, but he's not pleased with Cain's corn. So why? I don't think it's because God wanted animal sacrifices here. He he does want animal sacrifices. We see that later on. But there's tons of time in the Old Testament where people bring God offerings of produce. And God's very pleased with it. That's not the issue here. So what is the issue? I think the issue is seen in verses 3 and 4. Okay, Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Look at how Cain's offering is described and how Abel's offering is described. Verse 3. In the course of time, 
Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So Abel's offering is described as a very special offering. It's the firstborn of the flock, and it's the best part of the the lamb, the, the fat portions. Cain's corn is just described as corn. It wasn't the best of the corn. It was like leftover corn, okay? Maybe half-grown corn, maybe moth-eaten, disease-ridden corn, kind of the leftover corn. So Abel's was firstborn of the, of the lamb and the fat portions of the lamb, the very best. Cain's was just like whatever. So why the difference? What does this show that Abel brought the best and Cain just brought like, well, whatever? Okay, think about it. What, what does this show about them? Cain and Abel both knew about God's immensity and God's goodness and God's nearness and God's wisdom and God's power, but they responded completely differently to what they saw of God. Abel loved God and trusted God and gladly bent the knee in submission to God and regularly had his heart filled with the joy of connecting with God, walking with God, knowing God. And so out of his joy in God, he brought the best to celebrate his joy in God. That, that was Abel's heart. Cain was totally different. Cain didn't like being told what to do. Cain turned his back on God. Cain just went through the religious motions here because he didn't want to feel guilty, he didn't want God to punish him, you know, his dad made him, whatever, okay, whatever was going on here. He just went through the religious motions just so that he could get through with that and then get on to what really interested in him, you know, whatever, calling the shots, being in control. And so Cain just brought the minimum. Okay, so Abel brought the best, celebrating his joy in God. Cain just brought the minimum, and God was pleased with Abel's offering and was not pleased with Cain's offering and Cain was very angry okay so here's this first sin after the fall Abel brings the best Cain's just like well whatever let's just get this this worship stuff over with and God's pleased with Abel's not pleased with Cain Cain gets very angry how does God respond to this first sin after the fall does he destroy Cain? Does he demolish Cain? Does he you know, throw Cain out of, the, out of the family? It's not what he does. This is an amazing thing. God comes, different picture, okay, God, God comes down, God immense, God, 50 million light years, big creator God comes down and talks to Cain. And he invites Cain to receive forgiveness for his sins. And to receive power to change. Look at verse 7. This is an amazing thing. This is how God responds to the first sin after the fall. I'm going to read this verse and then give you what I think each of these phrases means so that you, you can see what I'm getting from this and see if this resonates with you. God comes to Cain and says, If you do well, that is, if you turn from your independence, Cain, if you'll trust me to guide you, provide for you, satisfy you. If you do well, it's faith, trust me. Will you not be accepted? That is, you'll be accepted. If you'll trust me, you'll be forgiven. You'll be brought back into heart fellowship with me. You'll know the joys of knowing me. So if you do well, will you not be accepted? You will. 
And if you do not do well, if you do not turn to trust me, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. Now, now don't miss this. If you do not do well, that is, if you don't trust me, sin's crouching, it's going to get you. Which means that if you do do well, if you do trust me, I'm going to bring power upon you, and you're going to be able to be changed so that that sin does not have the power over you that's had. So if you do not do well, if you don't trust me, sin's crouching at the door, it's desirous for you, it will end up overcoming you. Cain, you must rule over it. That is, by trusting me, you must rule over it. I'm going to give you power to change. I'll change your heart. You must rule over it by trusting me or it will overpower you. So what does God do? First sin after the fall, he comes and he preaches the gospel to Cain because the only reason God can forgive Cain for his sin, the only reason Cain's sin power can be broken is through what Jesus would do thousands of years later on the cross. And so God comes to sinful Cain and speaks the gospel to him in mercy and in grace. I love that about God. When you sin... Many of us, we all need to hear this. When you sin, God's first response is to come to you and invite you. I'll forgive you and I'll give you power to change through what my holy son Jesus did on the cross. That's always God's first response. You've sinned and he's coming to you. He's pursuing you. He's calling you. Come, repent, Turn back to trusting me. Trust me to forgive you. Trust me to change you. Trust me to provide for you. Trust me to satisfy you. I will do everything you need. Turn and trust me. This is what God says to to Cain. So how does Cain respond? Verse 8. Cain turns his back on God, walks away from God, finds Abel, and kills him. Take that for being pleasing to God when I'm not. Jerk. I think what Moses is doing here is just brilliant by the Holy Spirit. He wants us to shudder at the horrifying reality of sin. Why would Cain have the immense near, merciful, good God, invite him to be forgiven and changed and walk away, rejected. Why? It's not lack of evidence. He knew all about God. It's not lack of communication. He heard clearly what God had invited him to. What's the problem? Same problem I have. Same problem you have. It's the problem Cain has. There's something in us the Bible calls sin. We don't want to be told what to do. We don't want to bend the knee before God. We want to call the shots. We want to be in control. And that's exactly what we're seeing here in Cain's response to God's invitation. This picture of sin should horrify us. Frighten us more than any horror movie you could possibly see. There's a power and there's an ugliness to Cain's sin that's been in each of us as well. If we're honest, it's been in us. But the good news is God can overcome it through Jesus, through his death on the cross, paying for the guilt of it, 
breaking the power of it for those he would save, if you will just repent and put your trust in him, he will change you, he will forgive you, he will love you, you'll be made new. But see the ugliness and the horror and the dark power of this sin. Are you feeling it? This is an amazing picture that Moses gives to us here. So what results from Cain's sin? Now we're heading into some bad news. It's going to be a long flow of bad news here. But I've got just, we're going to end with some good news here, so hang in with me. Nobody be leaving. It's like, this is bad news. It's, it's worse than you possibly could imagine, okay? Just buckle your seatbelts, put on your helmet. Here we go. What results from Cain's sin? So we've seen God mercifully invite Cain to forgiveness and freedom. Cain turns around, kills Abel, horrible sin. What results? First of all, in chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, we see that Cain's offspring are sinful. So Cain has progeny, and they're all sinful, epitomized in in Lamech, who's a proud, murderous, violent polygamist. You can see that in uh, chapter 4, verse uh, 19 and following. But then in verse 25, we see something that sounds maybe hopeful. So we've got got Cain's lineage, sinful, but then we've got another child born to Adam and Eve, Seth. Okay, And Seth has a son named Enosh. And there seems to be something godly about Seth and Enosh because at the end of verse 26, at the time of Seth and Enosh, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Which doesn't mean this is the first time anybody prayed. Calling upon the name of the Lord in the Pentateuch describes people coming together, many families gathering together for public worship. So they'd come together and they'd worship God. And so... Seth and Enosh have this effect that many people are starting to come together to worship God. So maybe there's some good news. We've got Cain's progeny, ungodly. We've got Seth's progeny, godly, hopeful sign. And you can see it continuing through chapter 5. Remember the story of Enoch, one of Seth's offspring? Enoch walked with God. Okay? Verses 22 through 24. And to, to help us give this glimpse right at the very first chapters of Genesis that there's life after death, we read that Enoch, God didn't let him die. God took him home to be with him. So we see Seth's offspring, chapter 5, trusting God. But, I said bad news was coming. Chapter 6, verse 5, we see that very shortly something horrifying has taken place. Chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that, I get this next line, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Pure evil. Doesn't mean that they were all constant serial killers. They went through religious motions like Cain did. They went to church like Cain did. They, they, but God was at the center of their lives, okay? So every intention of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. Now, how did that happen? How did you get from Seth's godly offspring to chapter 6, verse 5? I think the answer is in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. This is a difficult passage, okay? Study this on your own. Use some of the ESV study Bible notes. Let me throw out what I think is going on here, and you can study it and see if you agree. I think Moses is talking about how the sons of God, which were Seth's, the men in Seth's line, the godly men in Seth's line, the sons of God, married women purely for the sake of their looks with no concern about whether they were walking with God or not. That's what happened. 
And the result of that was that many of these godly men were drawn away from walking with God and their children ended up all far from God. And so you end up then with chapter 6, verse 5. As a result of this, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, let me just throw in a lesson here, a crucial lesson, in terms of who you marry, okay? If you love God, if your passion is Jesus Christ, if you're walking with him, trusting him to provide for you, trusting him to forgive you, trusting him to change you, trusting him to satisfy you, marry someone who shares that passion. It's not enough that they say, I'm spiritual, or that they say, I'll go to church. It's not enough. Cain went to church. Okay? Do they share your passion for Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, crucified, dead, buried, coming again? Is their life and heart being given to advancing Jesus' mission with the team of brothers and sisters, moving ahead in Christ-centered missional community? Is that where they're at? That's the kind of person you should marry. Okay, so just fair warning. But that's not what the men of Seth did. And the result is that many of them were drawn away from God and all the children ended up far from God. And that's how you get with chapter 6, verse 5. Everyone on the whole world has turned their backs on God, is rebelling against God, is far from God. Except one man. Noah. Noah. Thank you, Lord, for Noah. Okay? Noah chapter 6 verse, I'm sorry, Genesis 6 verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So what happens with Noah? You all know the story about Noah's ark, right? Chapter 6 verse 6, we see that the Lord was sorry that he'd made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. I want us to understand two things here. One is that the God who's created everything grieves and sorrows. We're made in his image, right? He, he has grief and sorrow like us in some ways, but not like us in other ways. But feel the reality that the God of the universe felt grief and sorrow as he looked down upon the world where everyone, except for Noah, every intent of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continuously. I mean, you've created the world to display your glory. Out of the joy of the Trinity delighting in their perfections, you create the world to display your glory so you can share the joy you have in your glory with created beings. And you look down upon the world and everyone except for Noah is not trusting you, not trusting you to provide, not trusting you to satisfy, not trusting you to guide, which means that they're shaking their fist in the cosmos saying, God's a liar, God's not good, God's not wise, don't trust God. This is what you're seeing happening on planet Earth. And so you feel grief and you're, you're feeling sorrowful in your heart. Now that could make you think, though, that God's maybe like made a mistake? Like, yikes, you mean God can like really screw it up that bad? I mean, like, what have we done? Father, Son, Spirit? That would be a mistake to conclude that. 1 Samuel 15, 29, we read a very interesting verse that says that God does not sorrow or grieve like men do. There's a sense in which God does sorrow and grieve, and another sense in which God does not sorrow and grieve like we do. What's the difference? 
Here's what's helped me. Just try this on for size. I think when God looks at any event, like Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, the earth filled with sin except for Noah, he can look at this from two very different perspectives. One perspective is he looks at that issue itself, just the sin in the world, people profaning his name, dishonoring his glory, turning their backs upon him, his whole purpose for creation ruined. Rather than displaying his glory, it's, uh, it's profaning him, it's blaspheming who he is. And when he sees that just in itself, he feels grief and sorrow rightly. Right? But God can also look at that same event with a wider angle perspective because he has purposefully allowed that to take place because through that he's going to bring an awesome display of his glory because because of this Jesus is going to come. God, creator, son of God, created everything, is going to be born of a virgin, hang on a cross, die, awesome display of God's love and God's justice that never could have been displayed otherwise. So God looks ahead to this display of his glory through Jesus. And he doesn't grieve and doesn't sorrow, and he's at peace, maybe even joy. Both can happen in God at the same time. So God has not lost control here. He's grieving as he looks just at the sin, And he's at peace, anticipating an awesome display of his glory as he looks down thousands of years and sees the cross. And not only that, then he also decides to respond with justice in terms of what happens here as he sees their sin. Everybody except for Noah sinning. Look at what he does in verse 7. God is just. And so in verse 7, he decides to punish sin by killing everyone except for Noah And his wife and his three sons and their wives, he's going to save eight people and everyone else is going to be drowned by God. So here in the early chapters of Genesis, God wants us to have a clear picture of this is what sin deserves. We've seen God's mercy in coming to Cain and inviting him to be forgiven, inviting him to change. Cain, change. You can change through what my son will do. You can change, Cain. See God's mercy, and then we see this horrifying picture of sin, Cain's sin, their sin, 6-5, our sin, and here we see God's justice. Church, what God does here is absolutely right and just. There's no ground for protest whatsoever. He tells Noah, build an ark. Noah builds an ark. He says, get male and female of all the different kinds of animals. They all get on. He says, get your family on, all eight of them. They all get on. And then the rain starts, torrential rain. And God drowns thousands and thousands and thousands of people. All those described in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. So that we can see, that's what I deserve. That's me. That's you. That's all of us. We've all been in Genesis 6, 5. We've all been there. If you haven't yet experienced Jesus' saving work, which we long for you to, then you're still there. This is what you deserve. This is what I've deserved. Okay, so God has destroyed everyone who's apart from knowing his family. It's like he's almost starting over again now with humanity. Is like sin gone now? Sadly, no. You read verses, chapter 9, verses 18 and following. Noah, even though Noah's been saved, even though Noah's heart's been changed, doesn't mean you become perfect and Noah goes out and gets drunk. He's lying on his bed naked. And his son Ham, so we can see Noah still has sin in his heart, okay? Sin hasn't been eradicated by the flood. And Ham, 
sees his dad, who's been the only righteous man on the earth, who built the ark, amazing, through whom he, Ham, was saved and his family, his wife. And Ham mocks him, showing that Ham doesn't see any importance in all those things that have taken place. So there's clearly sin in, in Ham. So even though sin's been punished, sin has survived. Okay? Which leads us to the horrifying picture we see in chapters 10 and 11 of Genesis. Now when you read these chapters, chapter 10 and 11, it's clear that Moses has switched the order in which the events took place. Chapter 11 took place before chapter 10, okay? Because in chapter 10, we see that everybody speaks different languages and Noah's three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, have all dispersed around through the whole world. They're all speaking different languages, but in chapter 11, what happens? The Tower of Babel. How many languages are they speaking at the beginning of that chapter? One. And they're all in one place, building this Tower of Babel. So why does Moses switch the order? He makes it really clear to us that the order is switched. It's kind of like a flashback. It's a flashback. So first you read chapter 10, and you see Noah's three sons have spread through the whole earth, all their family groups, different languages throughout the entire earth, and we're left wondering, is this good news or bad news? Is this that they're all spreading throughout the earth like Cain's offspring? Cain and Lamech? Or is this like Seth's and Enosh's and Noah's and Enoch's offspring? Godliness spreading throughout the earth. So we're all left at the end of chapter 10 wondering, what are these people like? And then flashback. Here's what caused them to be dispersed. They were all together. Ham, Shem, Japheth, and all their lineage. They all joined together to unite against God. To build the Tower of Babel in God's face. Look at what we can do. We don't need you. We're going to make a name for ourselves. We are bad. Look at us. Little puny humans towards this God who's so immense he made 50 million 100,000 wide light year galaxies. And so God said, this is, this is not going to continue. And he changes all their languages and he disperses them. And so we're left at the end of Genesis 10 and 11 with this Horrifying picture. There is no one, no one mentioned in chapters 10 and 11 who's walking with God, who's trusting God, who's calling upon God, who's righteous. No one. There's no Enoch's left on the earth. There's no Noah's left on the earth. There's no Seth's or Enoch's left on the earth. Everyone has turned their backs on God at the end of chapter 11. Now what does God do? This is amazing. (laughs) This is absolutely amazing. (laughs) So, are you feeling the bad news? Bad news. I just, I pray you get this. I pray you feel this. This will change your life. If you see who God is here, what does God do? Because of what God would send his son to do thousands of years down the road, paying for the guilt of sin, breaking the power of sin for those he would save, God brings his power upon an idolatrous moon worshiper, a rebellious, idolatrous moon worshiper named Abram. I say he's idolatrous because of, you read that in the, in your notes? It's, it's Joshua, I've got it written down here. Joshua 24.2. Just says he's an idolater. 
I think moon worshiper packs a little bit more punch, okay? So just bear with me here, all right? Who knows what, but the point is, he was not following God. He was not a Noah. He was not an Enoch. He was not a Seth. He was not an Enosh. He was shaking his fist in God's face. He was a Cain. He was a Lamech, Abram. And God brings his power upon Abram, idolatrous, moon-worshipping Abram, and takes out his heart of stone and gives him a heart of flesh, changes his heart, subdues his rebellious will, gives him a new heart, which owns up to the reality of who God is. You are immense, and you are near, and you are merciful, and you're faithful, and you're good. And so Abram repents of his independence, says, I want to bend the knee before you. I want to trust you. I want to follow you. Save me. Forgive me. And God does. And then look at what God says to Abram in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Let me just set the stage, though. Back in chapter 10 and 11, we've got all the people dispersing throughout the earth. And the word clans, C-L-A-N-S, is used in chapter 10 a couple of times. All of Seth spreads, all of his offspring, all of his clans, Japheth's clans, J- uh, Shemham and Japheth, all their clans are spread throughout the earth. So all these clans, these families of people spread throughout the earth, and they're all godless. And look what God says to Abram. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. I get this next line. In you, all the families Clans, same word used back in chapter 10. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. End of chapter 11. All the families of the earth were under the curse. End of chapter 11. All the families, the people groups, the clans of the earth had rebelled against God. No one had the blessing of knowing God. No godliness, no walking with God, no trusting God, no calling upon God. God brings his power upon Abram, saves him, changes his heart. Abram trusts God, repents, forgiven, saved. Then God says, now through you, Abram, I'm going to bring the blessing of knowing me to people in every family group, every clan in the earth. So we go from the end of chapter 10 and 11. Every family group doesn't have the blessing of knowing God. So now God is promising a time when every family group on the earth will have people in it who know God. How? In Abraham, through Abraham. How? Through Abraham. How? Well, we'll see how the story proceeds, but it's because Abraham's great, 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 great granddaughter is named Mary. And the creator of the world, God the Son, was born as a baby in a manger. God, who creates 50 million galaxies in a manger. And then God, creating 50 million galaxies, nailed to a cross to pay 
for sin. And God the Father looks down upon the Son, who He loves, He's always loved. And God chooses, because He loves you, to pour out the judgment you deserve upon His Son. And He pours His wrath out upon His Son on the cross. So it's paid for in Jesus. And so you don't need to pay for it. And through that outpouring, sin's power in you is broken so God can bring his power upon you. Change your heart so you turn and you see him. You own up. You say, I love you. I want to trust you. Jesus, could I bend the knee before you forever? And then you're forgiven completely, past, present, future, all your sins. Your heart's changed. You're brought back into the relationship of knowing God who you were created to know and to be satisfied and beholding his glory. So Genesis 10 and 11, no family group on the earth has the blessing of knowing God. God saves this idolatrous moon worshiper. It says, through your lineage, through your lineage, I'm going to bring the blessings of knowing me to people in every nation, tongue, tribe, and family group. Glory displayed. Do you see that? From eternity past, God said, oh, the, this exuberant joy we have in our perfections, let's go public. Let's display our glory. Let's create a universe so that we can show the glory that we are, so that we can have people share in the joy that we have in our glory. And this is where it's all going. It's an amazing display of the glory because the highest picture of God's glory is his mercy. Okay, we got time for just a couple questions maybe, and I've got two, two takeaways here, but what questions does this raise in your mind? Boy, I... Yeah, I have, I, have no, I have no reason to think that it's not literal. It, just, it sounds literal to me. It sounds like they lived for hundreds of years. I have no idea why. Um, there's no reason I think that we would think that's not possible. Um, what was the world like back then? As the curse progressively takes over the world, how does that affect longevity? Those are all the questions. But I, I, have no, I see no reason not to take that literally. Um, you all understand the question? Noah was a sinful man just like Cain was. Right? Okay, right? Hello? Okay. Yes, he was. But there's a big difference, and that is Noah responded to God's invitation for forgiveness and heart change by trusting God. Okay? So Noah trusted God. We read that in Hebrews 11. By faith, Noah built the ark. So Noah had faith in God, just like Abraham did in Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's justification. That's how Abraham was given the gift of perfect righteousness through what Jesus would do. That's how Abraham was counted as righteous before God. Same way with Noah. Okay? So it's faith. It's not that he was perfect. All right? He was changed. His heart was changed. He was different. He was growing progressively to trust God more and more. He got drunk after the, after the flood was over. That was not a good thing, but he was growing and changing. So it's because of what Jesus would do and because he responded to God's invitation with faith that his faith was counted as perfect righteousness for him, which is why he was not destroyed in the flood. And then by God's mercy, his wife and three sons and their wives were saved along with him. No one's ever been justified by works, okay? And I know you know that, all right? Noah wasn't. Nobody was. There's only one way to be justified. Justified means, how can I, who's got a sinful past and a sinful present, and I'm, gonna, I'm never going to be perfect until heaven um, by God's mercy, but how can I be accepted by a completely holy God? And it's because God takes all of my sin, puts them upon Jesus, punishes Jesus in my place, takes Jesus' perfect righteousness, gives it to me as a gift, and he does all that when I trust him. That's how. And that happens to Moses, 
Happened to Abram, happened to Sarah, happened to Ruth. Okay, that's how. All through Old Testament and New Testament, it's the only way anybody gets saved, but we're getting ahead of ourselves, all right? I love that question, though, because I love talking about that. Isn't this good news? See, it's all mercy. There's, you're, God preached the gospel to Cain in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. That's the gospel right there. If you do well, trust me like Abel's trusting me, you'll be accepted. Your face will be lifted up with joy. Okay, that's it for questions, though. Time's up. All right. Okay, those are, could have been much harder ones. I appreciate it, all of you. Here's, here's two takeaways. I just, I just want each of you to understand that no matter what your past has been like, and no matter how far from God you feel now, and no, and no matter how impossible it would feel in your heart to ever think you could ever love God and follow Jesus, God's giving you the same invitation right now today that he gave to Cain back in chapter 4, verse 7. He's saying, trust me. If you'll turn to me and trust me, I will change your heart. I will give you power. I will, I will break the power of sin in you. You do not know what you could be if you will just turn and ask me for help. I will change you. I will completely forgive you for all your past, present, and future sin. And you'll be accepted and your face will be lifted up and you'll have the joy of knowing me. This is what God is saying to you today. And you maybe have gone to church for years and this has never happened to you. Churches are full of people who think that because they're going to church that they're in, but they've never had their heart changed by God's power. Doesn't make you become perfect, but you're changed. You know God. Your heart beats with love for him. You love to worship him. You love to bend the knee before him. You hate sin when you stumble. God is inviting you. Trust me. You'll be accepted. You'll be changed. You'll be forgiven. Do you hear him? He, he is saying this to you right now through Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. So please turn and trust him. You do not know. You have no clue what, a, what kind of person you're going to be. It'll be wonderful. It'll be a good thing. He will change you. Don't think, well, yeah, but I've got this. You got it all. It's worse than you even know it is about you. And it was for me too. But he'll change you. That's the first takeaway. Please trust Jesus. Trust his death. Trust the offer of forgiveness. Trust the offer of change. And he will do it for you. You'll be like Noah, justified by faith. Second takeaway is this. God's purpose is through Abraham's great, 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 great granddaughter giving birth, conceived by the Holy Spirit to Jesus, goes to the cross so that every family group on the earth will come into the blessing of knowing God. Jesus, in the last verses in Matthew, said, All authority has been given to me. Go, make disciples of every people group. The cross has happened. The cross and the resurrection have happened. Now, it's time to go. It's time to get up and go. Go now. Make disciples of, of your neighborhood. Make disciples of your workplace. Make disciples of your friends. You think... I can't do that. You're right. So go relying on him. What should I do? Help me. Bill Schuler just told me this morning, asking God to bring people across your path, right? And he's doing it, right? See, and Bill said, he's just, it's just so right. He said, isn't that a prayer that's like always God's will? Like God bring people across my path. That's always God's will. You ask him, he will do it. He will do it. So ask him for help. You can't do this in your own power. Rely on Jesus. Rest in him. Trust in him. But he says, go into all the world and make disciples of every people group. This is what 
reality is about now, 2009. This is what God's story is. His people going, making disciples, fulfilling what was promised back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. In you, your seed, the Christ. Every family group on the earth will come into the blessing of knowing God. So go and make disciples. Okay, let's stand together. Let's ask God to meet us with this. Lord, I'm just blown away by your mercy to Cain, by the ugliness of Cain's sin, which has been my sin as well, by the judgment you bring against sin through Noah's ark, through the flood. And I'm totally blown away at what you did with Abram. And that through sending Jesus, you would bring the blessing of knowing you to people from every family group, every people group on the earth. Lord, I pray that right now, you would be drawing people to yourself, giving faith, granting repentance. Do it now, Lord, for the glory of your name. And I pray that right now, you would impress upon all of us that going and making disciples is what Your story is all about for us now. Overcome our fears, overcome our selfishness, overcome our sense of insufficiency. Make us able, Lord. You've promised to do it. So do this for the glory of your name, I pray.